people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello and welcome to 12 Rules for What. My name's Alex and this is the second part of our episode on eco-fascism. We really appreciate all the support um, you've given us so far. Uh, you can support us financially on Patreon at patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. And you can give as little as $2 a month, which is not that much at all. And you totally should because um, with more money, we can do more research, spend more time on booking guests and making the show better. If you like the show, then please do retweet, support, all that good stuff. And also, if you're on iTunes, give us that sick review, five stars, because it, for some reason it helps algorithmically. We are also pleased to say we're now part of the Channel Zero network of Anarchist Podcasts. We uh, will be running trailer for another show on the Channel Zero network sometime in the show. Make sure you check them all out. They're all sick. I'm again joined by Fawn from Green Anticopies Front. Welcome. So to start us off um, for like the second part, I kind of want to shift our focus a little bit. In the first episode, we talked about eco-fascism, how it worked a little bit. And I kind of want to talk about like an eco-anti-fascism and what that would look like. And um, the way I see it, I think there's kind of two ways it's kind of manifests. And one is like an anti-fascist movement that operates within the green movement and fights against reactionary thinking, reactionary politics. Um, and then there's a more expansive version of eco-anti-fascism, which considers the climate crisis as affecting fascist politics and tries to think about strategies which uh, can counter that and be effective in in a, in a like a future environment in which there's climate migration, more heavily policed borders, more authoritarian regimes. What kind of uh, thoughts do you have about like an eco-anti-fascism? Do you think it's it's a worthwhile project or do you think I'm backing up the wrong tree? I think as far as anti-fascism goes, like you say, there are two different attempts uh, two different sort of entry points you can make. You can either go via some overarching philosophy that is both green and anti-fascist, or you can attempt to anti-fascistize the already uh, green currents in the sort of activist sphere. From experience and from uh, the history of uh, ecological movements, it's quite important to have a green movement that is anti-fascist from the start, Mm-hmm. as opposed to attempting to reform uh, green or ecological-based thinkers. So, for example, the deep ecology movement has been significantly co-opted by um, national socialists mm-hmm. um, because it in itself isn't explicitly anti-fascist and it provides uh, to them a reasonable justification for fascism uh, to preserve the sanctity of all the individual creatures and lives. And if that requires the preservation of some... Um, constructed natural order where white Europeans are at the top then that's how it's got to be um, uh, and that is that's why that kind of thinking is dangerous because as much as it's it's nice to have a philosophy that starts from as equalizing and egalitarian principles as deep ecology does it doesn't have any sort of materialist analysis built into it mm-hmm. whereas a more stronger um, green uh, philosophy but again quite out there such as um, primitivism is materialist and has built into it a sort of anti-capitalist anti-fascist critique that isn't um, a sort of third positionist critique which is possible within the framework of deep ecology mm-hmm. perhaps we need to like kind of 
get ourselves on a level about what we mean when we're talking about eco-fascism in order to um, talk about eco-anti-fascism. So could you give us a, I know you've got it, so I don't know why I'm asking this question, but a sick quirk on what, what eco-fascism is. I can give you a sick quote. Amazing. So this one is from uh, Michael E. Zimmerman. And uh, in his text, he defines eco-fascism as a totalitarian government that requires individuals to sacrifice their interests to the well-being and glory of the, quote, land, unquote, uh, understood as the splendid web of life or the organic whole of nature, including peoples and their states. The land acquires mystical properties as the sacred source and absolute measure for all things. Polluting the land, either by toxins or by admitting the wrong kind of immigrants, not only threatens the state's stability and security, but also affronts the sacred natural order itself. Even though the web of life supposedly admits no hierarchies, eco-fascism requires leaders who enforce natural principles against selfish, i.e. unnatural, individuals and peoples. Militarism, expansionism, and possibly racism are required to defend the land, whether that's fatherland, mother earth, or Gaia, from those who disrespect the land, including both industrialized countries and overpopulated developing nations. Consistent with Darwinist principles, the eco-fascist state will succeed in the struggle for survival because such a state is more adaptive to, that is, respectful of, the environment, now glorified as the sacred web of life. You can see a lot of these kind of reactionary politics generalized throughout like kind of our mainstream popular culture, I feel. You have like characters like Chris Packham, BBC personality who presents Springwatch, and like people like David Attenborough, um, on the sly or sometimes not so on the sly, kind of in these very reactionary ideas like Malthusianism, which we talked about last episode, of overpopulation is like a problem. And to, in some cases that that's expected because it's coming from like a liberal place of um, not questioning capitalism. Just thinking about like popular, like climate education, science education, how does that kind of like low level um, politics affect eco-fascist thinking? As in how do, how does the underlying current of liberal analysis that is taught to people in schools affect how eco-fascists Not eco-fascists themselves, but like a generalised kind of eco-fascist thinking within the populace. Okay, yeah. So um, we talk about um, Britain as being a liberal democracy and similar for other Western countries like uh, Sweden or Norway or France or the US, these large imperialist powers. Um, and Within those countries, the rhetoric of borders isn't challenged. It's seen as, you know, it's unfortunate that people are, um, you know, stopped at borders, but it's not. Um, but it's it's what has to happen. It's We have to enforce some kind of law, otherwise everything will be uh, anarchic. Um, and there is, you know, there's no challenge to capitalism. It sort of says liberalism has built into it this idea that you know, if people are free to make choices, then capitalism is ethical because you're free to sell your labor. And it never bothers to uh, analyze why certain people may be only able to sell their labor sort of in the sense that Engels talked about in sort of wage slavery, as mm -hmm. opposed to freely giving away your labor to help a project. So there isn't any critique of um, the mode of production that we have. There's no critique of why... Uh, there are there is excessive production why imperialism is necessary again because if you're in the uk you don't see imperialism it's not part of your day-to-day -day life um and all these things are aspects of eco-fascism 
in themselves, i.e. as far as uh, productionism, uh, borders, they just are amped up. So if you provide a liberal uh, country with this um, sort of death cult style rhetoric about the planet will die any second now and there is nothing we can do except buy plastic straws, people um, who haven't been raised with any kind of other political analysis other than the one that's sort of already present in society... Um, are just going to default to the ideas that have served their country so far. Um, and if your country relies on closed borders and a strong state like uh, the US does or like the UK does, then you say, well, OK, let's tighten those controls and ensure that um, this, you know, that we protect the environment and that the whales are OK because we're only fishing X, Y and Z quotas. But unfortunately, that isn't actually... A critique that's just let's strengthen the state and strengthen the hierarchies we've already got built into it ignoring the material realities of capitalism whether that's the imperialist aspect the colonialist aspect any other aspect outside of um state man good um so it's it's kind of necessary for people to be taught that capitalism isn't the be-all end-all and that putting all your faith in it is dangerous because once it starts decaying and we have the problems that we have uh, with the environment and all of a sudden the world is really being killed it's not just you know it, it is it's not you know dead as we speak but it is being killed and if your solution is just to do liberalism harder um and greener then maybe you haven't thought, thought through that very much and you you'll get fascism yeah i, I guess the blue cross state is a as like an instrument of good that can rein in the evil corporations when really the Blue State is there to uh, support and nurture and protect the evil corporations. It's, yeah, there's a fundamental uh, contradiction going yeah. on right here. Yeah. <laughs> there's a conflict of interest. There. Really? Um, so uh, do, you, do you think like a, a, like a more materialist, a more communist anarchist um, form of popular science education um, would be able to stop this kind of general thinking do you think it's already set in or uh, and if so if you think it would be a, a positive project to have how could we actualize this um in like a, a kind of popular mass way i think there is real capacity within uh, science education and stem well just education in general to disavow the sort of liberal individualist style of science that i guess like stem's been left to the right for so long that yeah no one's been contesting these kind of things really ever it's like the division between liberal liberal humanities liberal arts and yeah. materialist stem but it's like right wing no but you don't understand it's pragmatic you, right. you, okay. you have to drone strike people and we <laughs> have to have better drones and where else than universities to build better drones but there is a meaningful platform uh sort of to combat this right wing sort of creep within uh the sciences um or hegemony even yeah <laughs> yeah hegemony so a lot of the research funding uh will come from corporations and it's maybe necessary to think about why a certain corporation is paying for a phd position or why a certain corporation is willing to pay researchers to research into um you know, harmless thing, harmless proximity centers, sensors or harmless drone technology. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time when you're doing that research, it just does seem like you are applying your degree or applying your A-levels or applying, you know, this engineering that you've maybe trained up in an apprenticeship. But 
that's because it's not questioned that these corporations have the interests of humans at heart, that these corporations are progressive. When in reality, if you're doing an internship at somewhere like BAE or Lockheed Martin, then what you're actually doing is contributing to imperialism in a very direct uh, way. So it, it, it should be part of the science curriculum to understand the effects of science and how it's used and how the science is, you know, the 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 positivism that science is based on is an enlightenment revelation. It is, science is and always will be a, a cultural phenomenon mm -hmm. um, as well as being a sort of, you know, to, to most scientists' mind, it's a very objective thing. You just find out what the truth of the universe are, but you also have to be aware that in a society that pushes this kind of individualism, all you, all you have to do is, um, you know, uh, do some research on this subject and that's you done. You've contributed your bit, you've fulfilled the societal contract. Um, but also there's a potential that people who don't use that kind of analysis, like the bourgeois class, who are aware of the material reality of the world and are fine with liberalism as an ideology because it doesn't threaten them in any way, um, are fine with utilizing those people who will apply their social contract um, to mean, okay, well, I should use my degree to build drones and use my degree to build more efficient uh, rockets and mm -hmm. uh, missiles and things. and Or better you know. machines for drilling oil. Yeah, or exactly. So uh, more efficient mining equipment or more efficient fracking equipment. Mm -hmm. Or um, you might be tasked as a mathematician to find the most optimal place to drill for oil, mm -hmm. uh, statistically and financially. And that sort of thing, while being an interesting project, and I'm sure you'll be paid very well for it, um, if you only consider it as far as I'm contributing to society via my degree, you forget the fact of how are people going to be forced to work on this project? How are people, uh, how are people's lives taken into account? Why is environmental degradation not accounted for? Why is it considered some sort of um, negative externality? It's It's not... If you're just doing the maths on its own because society is individualistic and there's no need to consider who might be seriously affected by your work. Just going back to the science education, is there like a, a particular medium that I think you think would be an effective uh, platform or in what way should it be presented and, and who should be targeted as well? Yeah, no, I think that it has to be while people are still at school taking science, teachers should use that opportunity to talk about the material effects um, of workers from each field so if you have if you're in, if you say to your teacher hey i'd really i'm really quite interested in going into biology as a field of study or neurobiology or i'm really interested in going into uh, chemicals i'm re really interested in going into animal testing if that is something that is brought up to a teacher then the teacher can sort of say well okay have you considered it, it like it's important for the teachers to have that conversation with students and say okay but that feeds in these people are getting richer off the back of that and have you considered that you might be hurting other people you might be bringing down their wages because you're bringing out more efficient surveillance systems mm -hmm. and you might be like this is all nice and everything but have you considered that maybe your actions are hurting animals a lot more or hurting people um, outside of the UK quite a lot and this is important because x y and z and then once you've got people thinking more sort of humanist um, in a more humanist way, you can begin to introduce concepts like materialism of saying, okay, well, it's not just your industry that you want to go in, whether that's chemistry, physics, you know, psychology, whatever, that has an interest on, that has a sort of effect on production. It's all 
production that has an effect on humans and actually there's a relationship between the, uh, how things are produced and who produces them and just even if you only introduce it by the time someone gets to year 11 to give someone that guidance of saying uh, there really is an underlying uh, effect uh, on society from how people work who they work for and what their work is doing mm-hmm. um, then those people will be more conscious and they might think hey maybe I, I don't want to build drones for Lockheed Martin because actually that's just furthering imperialism and that actually seems like a bit of a bad idea and mm-hmm. hey maybe I'd get paid a bit more if my boss wasn't taking you know all of my surplus value that I produce and therefore maybe we should stop killing the whales too that seems a bit bad hang on a minute this whole system is is co- wait a minute is corrupt the whole way through how did this happen you seem to be implying comrade a certain like general raising of the consciousness here i well listen if class consciousness is raised by this episode then you know that's good. it's all good yeah, yeah. It's, it's fine <laughs> one of the like one of the main planks of of eco-fascist politics i would say um is the, the construction of immigrants as an invasionary species mm. onto like the body of the population, the country, the land. And we have seen in recent years quite a lot of like academic studies and, and, and books written by academics that kind of present these uh, fears um, in certain bad ways, I would say. Um, certain ways in which there is like an implicit kind of almost agreement with with these attitudes. Um, and I wanted to ask how like legitimate are, how how can we present these kind of obviously very real reactionary thinking without like playing into the logic of the, of that thinking? I think it's probably a question of the language used in presenting science to the public, whether that's in articles, in journals, or in um, how these things are communicated via the news or via. Um, in newspapers or online sources or even podcasts about the news. For example, if you say that you have found a link between population uh, of a country and the uh, total plastic usage of a country in kilograms or the population of a country and the um, amount of CO2 emitted per year per, per citizen in that country or in the country as a whole, it's very easy to present that data without any underlying um, contextual analysis. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy for a journal to capitalize on the result and say, well, we need a very short article from you that summarizes these results as efficiently as possible. So you cut out all the context because it just isn't relevant to the actual discovery itself. The, the discovery itself is that there is a relation and here's the statistical methods we use to confirm that, but not why this is true. There is no context underneath it. There is no... Um, you know, we found that African countries um, have a higher amount of, I don't know, uh, CO2 released or uh, coal processed per human. And as the populations rise, this is increasing. But what you fail to mention is that where that coal is going and who is paying for that coal extraction. And it very often isn't the local people in those countries. It often isn't the people in the Congo paying for the extraction of natural resources from the Congo. It very often isn't... um, the people in uh, oil-rich countries, or at least the local workers in the oil-rich countries, paying for the extraction of oil. The problem with like the climate crisis, and I think concurrently eco-fascism, is like it's happening on such a huge scale. It's very hard to like 
keep everything in your head about just how fucked we are. Yeah. And and I think eco-fasting can often play on that sense of scale. Um, do you think uh, the breakdown in that kind of people's ability to, you know, engage with the world at a, at a certain, you know, scale um, leads to things like, like conspiracy movements like the Flat Earth Movement or, you know, I guess also you could include things like the anti, anti-vax conspiracy, things like this, these kind of like... Um, very marginal um, theories, which are now gaining traction within a much wider kind of group of the po- uh, part of the population. Uh, yeah, so this is going towards my pet hate of liberalism here. Um, in the reduction of the individual to like the most important demographic in society. So people think that change has to occur at the individual level and that it will happen widespread by just disseminating the best thoughts in the free market of ideas. And for materialists, that's just not really true. Um, also, a lot of people really aren't involved in land-based projects at all, so they don't have the time. The culture is often quite exclusionary in that it's very white and very middle class. And they see it as kind of a waste of time because it can't be monetized, so it's not sort of useful for sustaining, for sustaining yourself. Uh, so nature's effectively been left to the hobbyists and the capitalists, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but the adequate scale part is quite interesting because the adequate scale depends on who you talk to. So uh, Murray Bookchin suggested with communalism that the neighborhood is the best size for engaging with nature and that neighborhood socialism-ish, that's almost what it is, mm-hmm. is the optimal, most sustainable form of socialist o- organization. And Abdullah Erchalan, for example, has um, revised this slightly, given it uh, Kurdish characteristics, and it's working decently well in Rojava at the moment. Uh, Marxist-Leninists maybe would argue that the nation is the optimal scale for interacting with nature. They see like a nationally planned economy as being the only way to manage resources sustainably, uh, although Mao didn't do very well with the sparrows, so maybe that's uh, a little bit of a dead alley. An oh my god, we've got all these locusts. <laughs> Where did they come from? <laughs> Wait a minute. Hey. Um, and eco-fascists hold um, the view, like um, Marxist-Leninists or Maoists or Stalinists, that central planning is key to effective resource management. Um, however, they misunderstand why those resources aren't centrally or socially managed at the moment and are instead managed by these cap- uh, capitalist-like market forces instead. Um, some anarchists might argue that ecological sustainability can't come about via central planning and hierarchy um, because A, they're opposed to hierarchy, and B, uh, there will always be, always be like a little bit of a presence of some degree of oversight in the unnecessary like power structures. Um, therefore, they'll probably argue that like horizontal organization is the best because it allows people to be closest to the earth and so live sustainably. And deep ecology is like the radical offshoot of that idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you feel like, especially with the anarchist kind of um, um, sense of, of this, do you think like horizontalism is, or even like on the scale of neighborhood socialism is an adequate response to like the global catastrophe that we're facing? I mean, this is obviously, part of, this is a kind of a Zizek, Zizek argument, which is the, this is such a big problem that only like national or global solutions are the answer. I'm not handing off my autonomy to a multinational organization at the moment. Um, the minute mm-hmm. we have some revolution, I might think twice about that, but um until governments can be proved to be sustainable and effective with managing resources i don't think anyone uh, other than eco-fascists um would have comfort in assigning 
resource management to a supranational organization other than maybe neoliberals because they're quite happy to do it with uh, things like the EU or NATO or NAFTA. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the issue isn't eco-fascisms, it's eco-neolibs. Just thinking about a state response or a national scale to combat climate crisis, yeah. um, Extinction Rebellion have, have made their organization explicitly about petitioning the state to do more about climate change, to cut emissions by this certain date, to, uh, you know, be the benevolent kind of figure, patriarchal figure that comes in and uh, sorts all the problems. If only the Tories would listen uh, to the well-meaning people who are blocking the roads, um, uh, this will all be solved. Um, In addition, XR have got quite a lot of blowback for... um, keeping within their movement some fairly kind of eco-fascist reactionary figures and they've also been criticized for not having well for first flacking any kind of like uh, uh, systematic critique in their politics and also not being explicitly anti-fascist uh what effect does xr these kind of apolitical what effect does xr have on the environmental movement how much energy are they taking up and how, how much is it having an effect on the more direct action-based uh groups and how it is Extinction Rebellion's un-anti-fascist attitude and unpolitical attitude, what effect is that having on other left movements in the UK? XR have taken a lot of the activist space with them. They are at every protest, they have their own protests, they do their own direct action and they obviously are good at mobilising people. But the danger of mobilizing a lot of people is populism um, because you can't appeal to a mass of people with very sort of um, diverging worldviews without appealing to some sort of populist thing that they all have in common. It's very easy for them to claim to be apolitical because they don't intend to tackle political issues, but being apolitical means that you can be co-opted by genuine populists and genuine fascists within the movement um, simply because you've already set the framework up. If you've already set up um, sort of strange quasi-hierarchical systems uh, in order to distribute orders to activists and you've got rules laid out and you've specifically disavowed um, things like masking up or uh, carrying tools of any kind or um, not or, you know, you encourage talking to the police, then you already have a system that's very well set up to be co-opted by someone who wants to use that system to um, talk to the most people possible and let them know about the benefits of national socialism. Because as long as you don't term it like that and you talk about, um, it's controversial, but like the neo-paganist aspects of things and you say, no, you guys, we're trying to get in touch with the land too. And you distribute that message to a lot of people, a lot of people who are out on the streets think that they're doing something serious and you don't have a critique of the state as well. And in fact, your movement is talking directly to the state to say, we would like some reforms. We would like some changes, please. That's all we're doing this for. It's very easy for someone then to say, okay, I too would like to stop global warming and I too would like to stop the climate catastrophe and I too would like to work with the state. I'm on board with you. I'm here. I I also believe that all of us as one, failing to mention they mean one country or one race, uh, should be together and uh, help to take direct action against 
you know, the people that are doing this, again, failing to mention who is doing this. And as long as you remain apolitical, you just let yourselves be co-opted by these people. You say, well, that's fine because we don't have a critique of the state. So sure, are you guys, you know, we're trying to work with the state here. We're trying to work with the police, the police, well-known haters of fascists. Um, If you're trying to work with the police and the state, then it's very easy for someone who wants to be the police and the state to work with your movement. Um, so there is no anti-fascism within XR. And yes, local groups have taken some action towards it, but it makes it very difficult for people trying to be in the activist space uh, to take meaningful anti-fascist green actions because you might be accosted by someone who's ostensibly protect, uh, protecting the peace of the movement, but is actually, by stopping you from carrying out some sort of action, in fact, helping the police or helping the state in their continual repression of the movement and standing there and going, we don't know why the state hasn't cooperated yet because you have no materialist understanding of why the state occurs, why it exists in the first place and how it maintains its power and monopoly over violence over the individuals of a country or the nation that it's ostensibly serving, you will play into its hands. At a protest recently, some uh, comrades were shouted at and verbally abused by some of the people there protesting with Extinction Rebellion for, um, quote, making it violent. Um, and as far as they were masked up, they were aware of state surveillance. There were a very large number of police body cameras around. And those comrades were attempting to make a point about um, how the state bends to the will of uh, the people who control the economy and the people who control the economy have absolutely no regard whatsoever for the environment. And those people were being shouted at and accused of you're making this protest violent because these people who have been raised in a liberal country have the disillusion that you can be apolitical and you can completely ignore any sort of analysis as long as you're peaceful people will listen to you people will hear your ideas and think that yes we should save the planet but if you fail to critique why we haven't currently saved the planet yet and you fail to understand why certain other methods maybe haven't worked in the past and have led to groups like her first or for example deep green resistance suffering from uh, the presence of uh, turfs within your movement or um fascists within your movement or just people who identify as some weird form of you know pentilinkula-esque following some esoteric form of fascism or some esoteric third positionism within your movement if you fail to understand where that comes from you're doomed to repeat those exact same mistakes again and you'll do the worst part is that you're then endangering a significant number of people and as long as your main demographic is middle class and white that's I guess, you know, fine if they're laying their lives down very heroically. It's a bit of a saviour complex, but like if they're getting arrested, it's no skin off their back. But the real danger lies in the working class people who will be affected by this because they won't be able to get a job at their father's company after the action has taken place. The minute you have an arrest on your record, the minute you have um, a prison sentence on your police record, you're fucked for trying to find a job from that point on. It's if you don't have any other, if you rely on being a worker, working with the state, um, in as far as um, the state is a, a bourgeois state, and allowing yourself to be prosecuted can never be good for you. And if you're a person of colour, you're more likely to be violently oppressed by the state. We see this this thing that you're talking about just this couple of weeks yeah. um, with the Extinction Rebellion London Collective 
having a protest outside the Royal Courts of Justice saying, why are you prosecuting all of us, all of us thousand people for selling a road? Shouldn't you be focusing on prosecuting knife crime? <laughs> and, you know, uh, great. Throw a bunch of uh, young black men under the bus because you don't want to be get a fine for standing in a road. Um, yeah, this, this is just, a pri- just one yeah. example of many kind of things. If you're willing to like accept what's happening and that that's the natural order of things and you're not, and you're only confused by the fact that the police aren't arresting enough people of colour um, to keep your movement going, then maybe you don't understand why the police are there in the first place and maybe you're doomed to work with them and maybe the work you're doing is strengthening a racial bias within the police and the, the militarised uh, bourgeois state and maybe... That's not a good thing if you're trying to avoid fascism. And on that note, thank you for coming and doing another episode with us. Um, where can you, we find out about the Green Anti-Capitalist Front? Uh, you can find out about the Green Anti-Capitalist Front on our Twitter page, which is at Front Green. You can find out about us on our website, which is greenanticapitalist.org. Um, all one word yeah and we have a Facebook page as well and various regional groups. If you like this episode and you want to support us, as I said before, Patreon us. Reviewers, raters, retweeters, favours, recommenders, big us up, do our promotional work for us, all that kind of stuff. Um, Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. You're listening to Dissident Island Radio. Live every first and third Friday of the month at 9pm GMT. Check out www.dissidentisland.org for downloads and more. Yeah,